News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan here with Professor Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. Hi, everyone. Hey. Hi, everyone. And we're going to discuss just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York City. Let's jump right in. As Albany's budget sessions come to a close, it looks like a clean slate bill that would hide most conviction records from landlords, employers, and everyone else after a few years is close to passage. Lawmakers are still hoping to pass some version of good cause tenant protection into law, while it looks like there's no chance of a broader deal to spur housing production. Lawmakers are also trying to pass an incumbent protection deal that would let incumbents who already benefit from the nation's highest salaries and the biggest legally allowed contributions to collect matching funds on the first $250 of each of those big checks from their supporters. One of those lawmakers, Queens Assemblyman Juan Ardia, who stayed silent over many weeks after two women accused him of sexual misconduct, gave the Daily News the exclusive on a report that he commissioned from a law firm that he claims exonerates him, even as most of his old endorsers have continued to call for his resignation and both women have stood by their accounts. As the federal monitor watching the city's jails issued a devastating special report about five fatal or life-changing incidents there in just two weeks that it learned about through tips or press reports rather than from the Department of Correction, Commissioner Louis Molina is taking the position that nobody needs to know nothing. He says the monitor does not need to be informed about deaths in custody. And as our colleague Ruvain Blau first reported, the department is no longer disclosing those deaths to reporters or the public unless someone somehow knows and specifically asks about them. Mayor Adams, however, says he's just about out of patience with the monitor. Meantime, the Board of Correction, the other body, along with the uh, court-appointed federal monitor, that's supposed to have oversight into what's happening inside the black box that is Rikers, held an emergency meeting on Tuesday where its more transparency and reform-minded members voted to override their chair, who did not show up for this meeting, and to keep the interim director that the uh, board chair and Adams ally sent a surprise email on Sunday saying he was replacing. Speaking of court-appointed monitors, the one overseeing the New York Police Department found that one in four stops conducted by Eric Adams' plainclothes, quote, neighborhood safety teams, unquote, was unjustified and unconstitutional, and that 97% of its stops targeted Black and Hispanic men. Finally, the New York Times this week discovered, two years after the city's Yoav Gonin and Eileen Grinch reported on the then-new program, Brownsville's annual test of self-policing, where cops step back for a few days and let community members respond to almost all 9-11 calls. Chrissy, we were talking earlier. I know that self-policing thing caught your attention. What did you make of that? Well, um, first of all, it's so great to be back, the three of us. Just I need to put that out there. Um, you know, when I... Hi, Katie. Just the hi, three hi. of us. <laughs> and Adam. <laughs> and Adam. And her voice. Wait, wait, what's, what's um, the sitcom, though? You're, are we thinking oh, of just the company? Two of us? I'm Chrissy. Come and knock on my door. Well, if, if we're... If we're if we're a sitcom, we're three's company, obviously, and I'm Chrissy. So that's but, but that then who am I? John Ritter? Like who are me and No. <laughs> that's a okay, a different podcast. I'm gonna figure out who we are as a as a sitcom. Because we're definitely 
the Flintstones because when Ben Max comes on, he's the Jetsons. But um, all right. Oh, I'll I forgot. I'm that. sorry. I'm sorry, listeners and Adam. I for, I thought there were two guys and one girl in Three's Company, but that's literally not the promise of the show. There are two girls. So mm-hmm. I'm Janet then. No, I still like it better as Harry is Janet. <laughs> Harry. <laughs> I feel like Harry's Harry's John Ritter, though. Harry's Jack. Without the sort of lecherous um, miscellaneous things. Okay. What I derailed us. Before we get serious. I've derailed us. Before we get serious, a couple shout outs here. A shout out to Five Dog, the people of a certain age will understand vis-a-vis uh, Three's Company, not not a family safe reference, and to uh, Jeff Colden, Obsidian State, who has a long piece on the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, from which I learned, one, that Fife Dog was always embarrassed by the Mr. Dickens, will you please be my mayor line, and changed in a concert student, Mr. Dickens, you're an effed up mayor, and two, that they then reconciled and Dickens actually spoke at Fife Dog's funeral. What? I didn't Wait, can I that. say one thing about Fife Dog? Um, this, yeah, whether, yeah, so when I was at DNA Info, I covered what what might be one of the most emotional things I've ever covered. It was his funeral profe- procession. Mm-hmm. And fans gathered at the park in St. Albans where he hung out. Roy Wilkins Park, what am I talking about? Um, and literally, like, people came from far, from, like, Delaware, Pennsylvania. They drove through the night. And they just stood there waiting for his procession. And they, like, had his albums up. It was truly one of the most emotional things I've ever covered. And then afterwards, the people who were there were given T-shirts. And then it was like, let me find my coverage. And they were given T-shirts. And then those T-shirts were what got you into his memorial concert. So they really were rewarding, like, the fans. Oh, my God. But it was so – people were just in tears out there. I was like – it was very, very, very emotional. Um, I'm trying to think who. Uh, yeah, some guy came from Newark, Delaware, and and that was what got it in. Um, I still have the T-shirt. I'm sorry. It was Drez from Black Sheep who handed out the T-shirts, and that's how people got into um, his tribute show. But it was it was one of it was like just all these strangers just gathered. People were like, I took the train from Delaware, and then I took an Uber from you know whatever. Very expensive word, but that that is my story. What are we talking about? This, this yeah, no, no, we're talking more about this because this actually all circles together beautifully before we get on topic and brings <laughs> us back to John Ritter. So I, I'm not going to rap. My singing is bad enough. Uh, but but the quote from um, Hot Sex on a Platter, um, I heard she likes to do the 211, like my man John Ritter. But back to the subject, you can't catch wreck. You must get respect to earn respect. And with that, Let's talk about policing and people wanting to uh, police themselves rather than have the, uh, the NYPD and these plainclothes units come in in force. Okay, so Chrissy's going to answer this question. Part two, first of all, Hot Sex on a Platter is a terribly underrated song. It's amazing. Um, so what made me interested in the story, Harry and Katie, was because it made me think of Erica Ford and the work that she's been doing in Queens. Mm-hmm. For so long. And then this is a Brooklyn story. And so clearly, you know, re- remember when we had the police slowdown a few years ago and crime was just fine. I mean, nothing happened. Um, and I think police officers kind of walked it back because they, they realized it's like, yeah, we actually don't need to be paying you all all this money and all this overtime. Like there are obviously instances where you want to call the police, but this hyper policing, this, you know, this constant police surveillance where you see them 
kind of everywhere on their phones playing Candy Crush. I think a lot of communities realize that it's not worth the money uh, in a lot of ways. It's like, yes, we need a police force for serious uh, incidents, but we don't need them for so many of the minor infractions where they make the bulk of their money um, and spend the bulk of their time. So I love this concept. I mean, I do like the fact that it's like a small rollout. It has the, the larger undercurrent is it has to be built in trust. And I think until we can establish real trust-filled relationships with the NYPD and a lot of these communities, which it doesn't seem like the NYPD is terribly interested in doing, then I think programs like this need to exist. And I think that they'll continue to thrive because you're going to listen to someone that you respect and you feel like respects you back. And I think that, you know, when you hear from young people, when you hear from just people in communities who have been arrested several times, the undercurrent of their story is always these folks don't see us as human. They don't see this as our neighborhood. They're mad that they have to be here. They're coming in from other neighborhoods. They don't see themselves as part of this collective fabric. And here we are. And the percentage of cops, of course, who live in the city has dropped pretty dramatically in just the last few years. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have a commissioner from uh, Long Island. It's a... Uh... I, if I could say, I mean, the one thing I, I find that an interesting topic, and I probably have an unpopular opinion on it, because I think because I grew up in a neighborhood um, where there's a lot of cops, and it's not exactly a um, liberal, open-minded bastion of people. You know, I grew up in Rockaway, so you have a lot of cops, and there's a lot of racism out there. So I often think, like, you know, the, the commissioner, police commissioner lives in Valley Stream, which is a pretty diverse neighborhood yeah. right in the Queens border. It's like, so mm-hmm. do you want a cop living in Breezy Point, but not in... Roosevelt on Long Island, which is a predominantly black community. So I, I think sometimes I understand people's desires for that and the idea behind it, but I don't know. Maybe because I know so many racist parts of New York City. <laughs> I don't right, think listen, and, I don't think it's you, the, the quick fix. Right. And you know that I I think that there's certain parts of New York City that I wouldn't go to at two o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I'd sooner go to Mississippi. Um But that being said, I do think that, you know, as Harry mentioned, the number of cops who just don't live in any parts of the city, right? And they kind of, they drive in or, you know, they come in and it's like, ugh, I'm basically like going to see, you know, these people. And if they had some sort of skin in the game, even if it's a tax-based conversation, I think that would change some of our policing. But the fact that we don't have, you know, these kind of community beat cops where it's just, you know, someone who's like, hey, I know your mother. Like, because yeah. we live down the block and we went to high school together. So you shouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z. I think nowadays we see cops, it's like, you know, the hand is always on the hip slash gun slash taser. There's this real antagonistic stance. And I think a lot of communities just don't feel respected. And ergo, they don't respect police officers. So I love this concept of communities figuring things out without the intervention of police. Because sadly, we've seen time and time again, when police come into communities, somebody ends up dead. So why can't we just actually have a conversation, which so many of these communities are capable of doing? So a yeah. couple of things I just want to throw in there is for reasons I'm not clear on, the city council reported this week that the percentage of cops living in the five boroughs was 58% in 2016. And what, 2023, seven years later, it's down 10 percentage points to 48% which is a pretty dramatic shift. Uh, they don't dig into why. I, I'd honestly like to know more more about that. Um, the issue with saying all police officers must live here, and there's been lots of talk about that. Eric Adams said he liked that idea back when he was a candidate. He hasn't said anything as mayor. 
is it's expensive to live here. And this always becomes something of a union fight. But to Chrissy, what you're saying about neighborhood cops and beat cops and all that, I just want to note that the the the, the gun cops now, the jump out, uh, you know, surprise, here we are cops. They get the gun cops. Eric Adams has rebranded those as neighborhood safety teams. So it's interesting mm-hmm. for to hear him take the language of, of, of the one thing and convert it to the others. And a couple of the people inside the department I talked to keep pointing to me that, hey, these, quote, neighborhood safety teams are involved in an awful lot of car crashes. Um, and that those numbers have been going up. And we the, some people in the department think there's a recklessness to them that's causing a new set of issues that haven't been fully reported. And I've been digging around trying to find out more about that and, and talking to folks. Uh, but but that that is the branding of people who are committed to a neighborhood with the uh, with the jump out guys who are, who are very much meant to be something else and are not meant to be officer friendly or the beat cop or the face you recognize or the guy you see at the grocery. Right. I mean, what he's done is just he's taken the name of one thing and put it on something that's almost the opposite of what we're talking about. You know, when I say beat cop, I'm saying someone who is in uniform, who is literally his job is to get to know the neighborhood. So. They're conversations that can be had before things pop off. What Eric Adams has done, because he's a cop first, is that he's given more money and power to the NYPD. He's given them more autonomy to do these things. I mean, can you imagine just walking down the street and someone in plain clothes just jumps out of a car and tries to arrest you? I mean, this is where what what man, woman, or child would ever trust a police department that sort of has that ethos? Because we also know that in certain neighborhoods, they're only looking for certain types of people. So it's the antithesis of what the initial uh, community policing is all about. And the sort of type of people are, are young black and Hispanic men. And the, the argument that the police will make for this is this is who we need to protect because some of these the, 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 these young men and boys have the guns and, and some of those same ones and some other ones are who's going to get shot. And that has always been a circle around going back for just one second to pop culture. What do we think? And speaking of cops who live in the neighborhood. But it's definitely not officer friendly. Uh, how do we feel about Training Day? The movie. The movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually think I've ever seen it. I've only seen it once, and I thought it was great. I don't think that that should have been the role that Denzel Washington gets an Oscar for. I just think that that's the racism of the Academy, and they're like, "Oh, sorry, we kept screwing you over." So. Here's your yeah. elimination Oscar. But um, I thought he and what Ethan Hawke had great chemistry. Uh, I like the the tale, but it's not one of my favorite Denzel movies. Mm. I, I ask only because, you know, he, he's a narcotics officer playing clothes in this movie. And as you find out at the very end, he does actually live in the neighborhood where once he, he's weak and out of power, every, everyone turns on him. And it's both a, a very uh, colorful movie and one that has like all sorts of shorthand. For both uh, what's real and what what what's scary in the inner city, I will say that when I was in high school um, in Tribeca for a while, Ethan Hawke would be like outside, like reading poetry and smoking and stuff, and uh, uh, my friends and I would be uh, very uh, obnoxious and slightly menacing to him, which seemed very Wait. funny at the, at the time. Harry, you saying you went to high school in Tribeca? Is that like the high school equivalent of I went to college in Cambridge? <laughs> I, I, I didn't graduate, so so. Where, oh, I, where, know, where'd you oh, where where'd you go to high school, Harry? I went to Stuyvesant for for <laughs> for three years and a little change. I, I had this T-shirt, drop out now and avoid the rush, but I did not, not take my own advice. So I got into the 
started my senior year. Um, I, I was on the wall bothering Ethan Hawke and, and perhaps using substances and so on. And the administrators told my parents we're not going to let him graduate. And I was like, they're cowards. Uh, they're officious bureaucrats. They're not going to do a damn thing, which was correct. And I had decent grits. Uh, and my parents weakly withdrew me. And I then had a, a long journey to eventually going to college. I never got my GED, which, which became its own issue. In New York, you automatically get one after a year, but you have to do paperwork. And that was always a big issue for me. Wow. Um, with this, <laughs> maybe we want to talk about the SHSATs and that um, what's become an, 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 an endless or perennial conversation about uh, how few uh, black students in particular get admitted. I think seven at Stuyvesant mm -hmm. this year. Mm -hmm. How many Asian students get admitted where I've been telling the New York Times and I talked with them actually about an education job a couple of years ago. But for years, the, the, like it's good that you're on this story. This is all interesting. You have to do something about the private schools that have, have picked up a great many of the higher performing black students as a way to actually check off their own mm -hmm. diversity numbers. And it made this appear when you're just using that one measurement, which is often an issue, as with the neighborhood policing and almost everything else, look even worse than it would otherwise B, which has just been bizarrely absent from the conversation to me and is an obvious and measurable thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've got different charters too, but obviously programs like prep, prep and ABC and, mm -hmm. you know, lots of boarding school programs. But that's yep. like, that's a, that is a, a percentage of Black students. But here's the thing that frustrates me. There are a few things, actually, as you all know. But this one is is really frustrating because it's like, you can't tell me that there are only seven Black smart students that are eligible for Stuyvesant. When, you know, I was in college 20 some odd years ago, uh, there were, you know, obviously a lot of cats that went to Stuyvesant and Brooklyn Tech and Bronx Science, you know, and they had much larger percentages of, of Black students. I think I always bristle as an educator when everything rides on one test. And so we know that there's certain communities, immigrant communities in particular, not just Asian communities, but like just immigrant communities in particular, who are using these testing centers. It's like, listen, you just hit fifth grade every Saturday. This is where you're going. And it's sort of like when you play Jeopardy, right? You play Jeopardy on a Monday and you might get a few. If you play Jeopardy for two weeks in a row, you just all of a sudden start answering stuff, right? It's like Emily Bronte. It's like, how the hell did I know that? It's like, I don't know. You just kind of, you keep taking the test and it makes sense. So to say that like we have these little test taking machines that then get into the school, it's like, but that's so much more should go into factoring who should be in high school. Like you want a class that actually makes sense where people have interests and ideas and maybe they're not all just straight up little test machines. And so I, I don't like the fact that it's just one rote test that gets people in. I do think that this is this is where Eric Adams differs from, you know, de Blasio. De Blasio is talking about trying to integrate schools and change, you know, make things more diverse and equitable. Eric Adams is like crickets on this. He's just like, I'm not going to, you know, have Asian Americans and white folks mad at me because their kids have to go to school, black and Latinos. So he's just sort of quiet, which I think says a lot about his educational strategy and why it is that unless he has like a significant challenger, he'll be just fine in 2025. Ooh. He, he, he is... Uh... His approach has been that we need to improve the feeder schools. We need this new focus on phonics, rhetorically at least. But he's got a very limited window to show and prove any results from that. And I suspect you're right. He's just going to be quiet. Speaking of Jeopardy, and um, as I am aware of but disinterested in seeing this remake of uh, White Men Can't Jump, 
Um, oh, it's terrible. Of Perez. I it's I, terrible. Indeed, indeed too, too good, too bad to check. I'm, I'm not interested. I do want to point out that the, uh, uh, you remember the uh, doo-wop guys were singing at the, uh, uh, were singing at Venice Beach at the uh, start and the end of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are uh, uh, John Hendricks from uh, the great and integrated jazz vocalist group, Lambert Hendricks and Ross, when that was a very unique thing. And uh, Bill Henderson were both real old at that point, but uh, just basically ridiculously awesome. I will not be watching the remake. Well, you know what? I'm not watching that remake, and I'm not watching the remake of House Party, which I hear is pure rubbish and like borderline insulting. Oh, so, God. <clears throat> call me crotchety. And I will go see the movie Color Purple, but I'll do it begrudgingly. I don't think everything needs to be remade. Can Indeed. we have some new and original ideas? I beg. Well, we can't right now because they're on strike. But um, yes. <laughs> Eventually, when the strike is settled and everyone gets what they want, we can perhaps have some new ideas in the films and televisions. And staying with Woody Harrelson and <laughs> Jeopardy, um, y'all have seen the uh, Jeopardy episode of Cheers, right? No, no. Was Sam on there? Severe spoiler alert. Cliff Clavin gets on Jeopardy. This is from memory, so we'll see. Um, and he tears it up. He wins everything. Uh, he's like the best Jeopardy guy ever, this side of like Rosie Perez. And then they get the final Jeopardy. And um, it, it, it's what do these three people have in common? There's something obvious. I don't remember the answer, but he is stumped. And he writes, who are three people who have not been in my kitchen? And uh, which is true, but they do not let him win. And it is a uh, it is a tragedy. And that's the end of the episode. And pretty much all that I can remember. Uh, I did think Coach was better, actually, than than Woody on, on Cheers. But I haven't seen it in 20 years, so I might be totally wrong. And shout out mm. to everyone for not remaking it. Well, listen, I thought you were going to. Talk about when you said coach. I love that show. The Dopper. You remember mm-hmm. Craig T. Nelson? Even though I hear mm-hmm. he's like kind of gone off the rails, but here we are. Oh man. Um they all do eventually. <laughs> it's uh it's sad. Going off the rails, you mean the podcast or other people? Just people. <laughs> ah, okay. So so that's our transition. Into uh, into popular culture, I think. Katie, what did you do this last weekend? Wait, before I get into that, can we talk about the two things that, I mean, I, I should have noted this. Um, I wanted to get everyone's take. As we record this, some members of the city council are headed down to Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. to try to do what Mayor Eric Adams has been unable to do and to get more money for the city's asylum secret crisis. The cynic in me, because we all have one, is like, well, what's that going to do if the mayor couldn't get it? No offense to the council members, but are they going to get it? Um, and I know, obviously, part of it feels to me like the mayor keeps saying, I don't see anyone going down to D.C., even as mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. as recently as yesterday. Brad Leonard is going down to D.C. to guess for money. He's critical, blah, 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 as the mayor was also criticizing CUNY Law School for saying they don't help with the migrants, which they do. Um, but that's a whole other story. He's still mad they booed him. Um, yep. I wanted to get your take, you know— Sometimes it just feels like such political theater, you know. I mean, it would be amazing if the delegation of the speaker, of Speaker Adrian Adams and and Keith Powers and Justin Brennan can go down and successfully get more money for the city. But um, I don't think it will happen. It'd be funny. It'd be funny if uh, as Adams is as irritated Biden by going at this directly. Yeah. Uh, this then becomes the conduit through which money is passed. Katie, as you know, Justin Brandon just put out like an angry statement 
you know, uh, that was fiery on the page, at least, about how this mayor doesn't seem to remember that we're a co-equal branch of government. Yeah. And and so as he is calling this out, like plainly there are these escalating tensions between the executive and the lawmakers where they keep trying to monitor, which goes back, by the way, to the prisons, to the uh, the jails, excuse me, the right to shelter stuff, mm-hmm. where Adams keeps taking these uh, maximalist positions and like everyone else is just clowns who need to sit down and let me do things. And this is clearly increasing tensions between him and uh, and the lawmakers. But the mayor does have a stronger hand in New York, just how the government is built. Um, and especially day to day than the council does. And they're, they're, they're trying to establish their, their seriousness. Uh, you know, I sort of have my doubts, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, and I think the speakers come out a little bit stronger. Um, mm-hmm. The city, we, we had a sit down with her and she was critical of the mayor publicly, really, for the first time. Um, she said something that the mayor's office I know is mad about. She said, now we know who we're dealing with when it comes to the budget. And they didn't know before, I guess, implying that. Perhaps they were a little mean or rude or whatever it was on the on the mayor's side. Um, they, they were mad about that and not her saying they're just making it up as they go along. We, yeah, we they were mad about that, mad about grownups in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're 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 kind of squaring for a fight, you know, and I, I don't believe, you know, last year we had an early budget. This year, uh, even Jacques Jiha said it'll be, the primary is June 27th, so it'll be between that and June 30th. If it's after June 30th, it's late and that's not good. Uh, it's very, very bad for the city. We can't do what the state does and just kind of have it be late. Um, yeah, it'll be a very interesting month, um, June, which we're in right now. I mean, the, the next couple of weeks will be really pivotal for seeing what's going to happen. And we also have a primary. Again, the council people love, they love running for office. We have DA's races in Queens and the Bronx. Obviously, judges are on the ballot, but the council races, which we could probably talk about next week. But yes, what did I do this weekend? For the second year in a row, I co-hosted the Miss New York competition um, up in Peekskill, the cultural center of New York, as I was joking about it. Um, as you know, we had this outgoing Miss New York, Karen Delaney Smith on the podcast, very fascinating person. This year's winner, um, Miss Manhattan, her name is Amelia Collins. You know, I never knew much about this world until my friend who runs Miss New York asked me, you know, she would talk about it and she asked me to host it last year. And it totally changed my idea on this stuff. You know, I think I probably had a very like sexist, internalized sexism view of who would take part in a competition like this. But all of the contestants, or they were called delegates this year, are like, I'm studying biochemistry. One teen contestant explained climate change in a poem for her talent. You have people one women woman danced to a song that she recorded. You know, it was very, very impressive people at scholarship competition. You know, my friend who runs Miss New York, her she was Miss Kansas 2012. She made it to Miss America. It paid for her law school. So it's a very fascinating thing that I do. And it's it's sort of very weird and maybe unexpected. But I have a lot of fun. I got to stay in a hotel Saturday night in Westchester. I got to drive around beautiful Westchester. Um visited Tarrytown, Peekskill, and Pleasantville. Mm. Um Whoa. So yeah, that's what I did. So we have Miss Manhattan. You know, it's good to have someone from the five boroughs, or at least representing the five boroughs. As although I will yeah. say the first runner-up is was Miss Buffalo, but she is from Queens. She was also a delegate last year, so she was the first runner-up. She's a TV reporter. So yeah, it's very impressive people. Um, Shout out to good. Bess Meyerson, a yes. nineteen forty-five winner. But I got to ask, with Amelia Collins, as I'm looking right now, her talent is lyrical dance. What is lyrical dance? Wait, she is the one. She recorded a rendition of Colors of the Wind from Pocahontas and then danced to it. Ah, so she almost what? had like a double talent. 
Yeah, that's what I was exactly. Wait, is this one is she the one who makes those great um Instagram videos? That's our outgoing Miss New York Taryn. Okay, that's yeah. outgoing. I really like her. She's phenomenal. I mean, it's just such a cool thing. And honestly, like first runner up, Miss America, uh, the fix was queer with the end. She was first runner up. Yeah, you know, I mean, the the women empowerment, like seeing the way you're kind of backstage, it's very chaotic. I'm shoving myself into a gown and trying to flat iron my hair or whatever and tease it or whatever they do. But all the the all the delegates are so there's just so much kindness. What I loved seeing was for the formal gown part, who they were going in a line and whoever was behind, they would kind of like shake the back of the dress out as they walked. So they had a little movement and everyone just very dutifully doing it for the for the person in front of them and being very supportive. And obviously, you know, if you don't be, if you're not a top 11, there's there's plenty of tears, but there's lots of that pep talk stuff. You know, I went to an all girls high school and that's what I always liked. There was such like a camaraderie there and you're just really, truly supportive of each other. And I think it kind of bucks the the stereotype of, you know, what do people think? Women are all catty and cutting each other down. And I guess that's the male stereotype. That's what they want us to be mm-hmm. doing. But when you're in a scenario like that, seeing how helpful everyone is with each other and just super supportive and genuinely, I mean, maybe they could all be faking it when they announce the winner, but really true, genuine happiness when the winner is crowned. Um, there you go. A nice little hashtag support women. Well, I think that's fantastic. And um, next time, let us know that you're going to be the judge. I mean, come on. I was a host, not I mean, a judge. The judge I mean, is too much oh, responsibility. Gotcha. You're the host. You know. That's still the host. That's dope, Katie. Well, you no. know, but you but you started this by by talking about June 27th, which I think yes. we should probably talk more about a little bit that, more on this. Uh, both are important. I'm gonna I'm gonna say both and. Um, but I think we do need to talk about this a bit more on the podcast because our listeners need to make sure they have a voting plan. It goes to this larger conversation we're constantly having about possible voter fatigue and asking uh, New York residents to consistently stay at the polls, but. I just read a story this morning that there are, you know, possibly some pretty contentious primaries for the DA in Queens and the Bronx, and they do mm-hmm. not vote by ranked choice voting. They're still kind of standard uh, voting practices. So I think a lot of our listeners are of the highly politically educated sort, but, you know, it's each one to each one. Make sure that the folks in your community, A, know that their election's happening on Tuesday, June 27th, and there will be Early ranked choice voting. voting. Early yes, and there's early voting before Saturday, that Saturday, June 17th, every day through Sunday, June 25th. Uh, you need to go to the board, uh, the board of Elections poll site locator. Just Google it to see where that beep is. It might not be the same as your election day place. And you can also see your sample ballot there. So no one's going to vote. It's nonsense to have ranked choice in some of the elections and not others and primaries and not in generals. But you should go vote. And you have ranked choice. And that means if there's someone you don't think is going to win but you want to register your support for them, put them at the top, and then you, you can strategically use that to indicate your preferences without wasting your vote if you do have a crowded ballot and thoughts that way. And go to the city.nyc because we have a very jaunty, interactive um, city yes. council guide, the, the district's dance on the computer screen. You could see who's running. You know, Some seats people don't have any opponents, um, but it's all there for you. And obviously there was redistricting, so you might not even realize you've been living your life in your apartment thinking you're in one district, but now you're in another. So <laughs> I like that vibe. You've been living they your mi- life. You've been living a your life. It's a lie. It's a lie. Overnight, the people to confuse you 
And the other thing that I'm embarrassed to admit, but I will admit, I thought this 2021, I'm like, okay, this is for a four-year term. No, it's for another two-year term. So yeah. if you missed it this year, don't worry. There, sometimes it still feels like I'm in 2021. So the fact that we're in 2023 always comes as a surprise to me. But there's another council election in 2025. I mean, how so much money elections. are we spending? A lot. Eleven percent turnout. I love a lot. I mean, we can talk about it in a future episode about the races, the runs, the everything. So you know, we shall see. FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were Katie Honan, Christina Greer, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. And I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. As ever, thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more. I mean, we can talk about it in a future episode about the races, the runs, the everything. So, you know. We shall see. The way you said that, Katie, it made me think of the mansions, the millionaires, the apps. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what it feels like sometimes. Right. Shout out to Jeff Colton. I can't wait to read his piece. Um, that's really great. Friend of the pod, Jeff Colton. <laughs>